Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We're in Galatians chapter 6 this morning. We have two messages left in this book today and next week. We're on message 26 now. And uh, we're taking three verses, chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, and then we'll take the rest of these verses uh, next Sunday morning. This is Paul's benediction, if you will, to the book. You know, Paul always has a salutation and a benediction, an end to his book. The salutations are always the greetings. Paul will start off by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to whomever, and he'll include almost always words like grace, uh, mercy, peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are kind of standard things that he writes in his letters, but when he gets to the end, there will always be something like these verses that we have from verse 11 through 18. And uh, in these, uh, I call it benediction, you notice there's the word amen at the, at the very end, which is real common also. You know, a benediction is usually a prayer at, at the end of a service or something like that. But Paul says amen. And uh, we have uh, things given to us at the end of the book that also are important. There, there are often exhortations here, uh, finally, as he just exhorts us uh, in one way or another, there might be prayer requests even for himself, as he asks, often he asks his readers and churches to, to pray for him. Sometimes there's warnings, and sometimes there's just uh, great praises made toward God at the end of these. I love the one at the end of 2 Corinthians in the last verse of that long letter. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, so he often does things like that. And the, these encourage us at the, at the end of a book. Now, we have learned as we've gone through this book that uh, Galatians was probably Paul's first letter. So we go way back uh, to about A.D. 45 in the Jerusalem Council where there, there was a lot of controversy over keeping the law. Do you have to keep the old Mosaic law? They've been doing it for 1,500 years. It's, it's pretty hard to stop. And uh, so there were men that we call Judaizers. We'll talk about them today also. And uh, so Paul writes this letter about that. And we read these verses a few minutes ago in our service, and you notice even here at the end of the letter, he has to say again, I know that they're trying to compel you to keep things in the law. Circumcision is, is the big issue here. I know they're trying to do this, but the only reason they are is they don't want to be persecuted for just believing in the cross and nothing else. And so we're going to see that. But Paul also, in all of his letters, and we've seen this in the book of Galatians, he, he sets a certain pattern that we, we find throughout his letters. And if we recognize these things, it helps us. Again, salutations, benedictions in all of them. But there's all, Paul always starts off with the exposition. Here's the doctrine. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. And he does that in the first half of the book. And then he applies that to his readers in the second half of the book. That's almost always true, and you'll find, find that in, in these letters. There are compliments to people 
uh, and praises to his co-workers and, and those who are, are with him. And sometimes there's warnings to people. Uh, and, and Paul would call them by name. And often we have those names in, in his books that otherwise we wouldn't know. I'm sure Euodius and Syntyche over in Philippi wish they'd never been arguing because Paul mentions their names and now forevermore they're inscribed and inspired in the word of God. How, how would you like to, uh, you know, for every mistake you've ever made, have your name in the word of God for then? So Paul, Paul does things like this. And yet we also have names of, of his opponents uh, and we have names of his co-workers and things like that. And then, then of course, there are just the praises, uh, as I read to you in Corinthians, and his own praise to God. And, and you see in these things Paul's humility and his meekness and gentleness and, and those kinds of things as he writes these letters. So what, what is our takeaway from learning about a book like Galatians? Well, when when we read the Word of God, or even when we listen to the Word of God, but when we read the Word of God, we should do it also with reverence and humility. We're reading God's very words. We're reading what He wanted us to read when He wrote this thousands of years ago. Uh, or as the writer of Hebrews says, let's do it with reverence and godly fear. I think we ought to read His Word with both eagerness and patience. It ought to be something that we're glad to get back to. We're glad to have the time to sit down. This is my time to read. I, I've been waiting to read this book. I want to get through it. A, a certain eagerness to be in God's Word, but yet with patience. Let's not rush through it. We're not speed readers in God's Word. We, we need to take our time and, and learn. Let's do it with learning and application, since that's the way Paul presents his books, with doctrine that we need to learn and then how to apply it to our lives. So we all go there wanting to learn something, and we'll never learn at all. We'll never get to the bottom of it, so there's always something new for us to learn. And since we have to walk daily through this world, there's always some way that we can apply it to our lives. And both with familiarity and with newness, with freshness. I love it that I've read some of these things so many times that I can, my mind can be wandering and my mouth is still saying the words. You know what I mean? They're, they're just familiar to us. And yet, every time you do it is fresh. Every time you do it, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and working through those words in your own mind. So, Reading Scripture is a wonderful thing. It's, it's something God has designed for us and designed us to do. It's profitable, remember Paul said, for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. And that's why we read it. So I enjoy even, even these benedictions, these last things that come along in the book. So follow, uh, if you will. Notice uh, I get, I've given you three thoughts from these three verses and some thoughts underneath those. Because I think in these three verses, at least the way I see them, is there, there are three groups of people, though I, Paul is one group, but three different kinds of people, you might say, and they all express a certain personality, and we learn something from these as Paul takes time now to say his final words to us. 
So notice, first of all, of course, in verse 11, as we start out, he's going to talk about himself. I, I call it Paul in his ministry. You see what large letter, with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Now, Paul tells us something about himself here. We, we might not know if he hadn't said things like this in the Scripture. And one is that he had certain infirmities in the flesh. And we see it coming out here. And then the vocation is what he does as a minister and a little bit of his personality. So notice, first of all, that expression about large letters. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Now, the word is plural. It's letters. As a matter of fact, even the adjective is plural, large letters. Uh, and so what does he mean by that? Because he, he might be, some, some think maybe, that he's speaking about all of his letters that he writes. And really, for letters, they're pretty large, especially books like Corinthians and Romans and, and, and books like that. Those are large letters. Is that what he means? But I think more likely, he's actually talking about the letters on the page. See what large letters I'm using here. Then we have to ask ourselves, well, why is he bringing that up, or why does he say that? And there are some thoughts about that. Number one, you know that when the Bible writers of the New Testament, actually New or Old Testament, in that Old Hebrew or in that Greek in the New Testament, they wrote with capital letters. They didn't write with small letters. And so those older manuscripts that we have that go back uh, before, say, 500 A.D., and, and you look at copies of the Scripture, it's all in capital letters. And, and if you've ever seen one, there, there's no punctuation. There's not even spaces between the words. So it just looks like, you know, one of those games you play with a bunch of letters on a page. That's what a manuscript looks like. And yet they knew what to do with it. That's, that's the way they wrote. They're called unseals. You know, we call them capital letters and small letters, but uh, they were called unseals, meaning large letters. And so he's writing with those, that's true. Some people think that what he's referring to here is his signature. Because he's, as we're going to see in a minute, he signs his letters. And uh, did you ever see someone put their John Hancock on something? <laughs> you know, sign here, and it's one of those people that go like this, you know, with their letters. Is that what he's doing? Maybe, because if he did sign it. But, you know, another... Uh, suggestion that, I, that makes sense to me is we know Paul had this infirmity in his flesh, and that is his eyesight. He couldn't see well. Remember that? And, and the Bible often talks about that. Go back over to chapter 4 with me to verse 14, and remember these verses where as, as Paul is writing to the Galatians, he was up there. He preached to them. He, he brought the gospel to them. And so he says in verse 14, My trial which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. I mean, he, I was his spokesman. And then verse 15, What then was the blessing you enjoyed? Or I bear witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. I wasn't much to look at, he says. 
I just a short runny runny eyes. I couldn't see well. You remember in in the book of Acts, where in Acts chapter twenty three, he's brought before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, and he begins to speak, and he's sitting in the room with them, and he mentions God by name, which the Jews never did. They thought the name was too holy to say. But he mentions God by name. And so the high priest says, smack him on the face. And a guy comes over and whack. And Paul, feeling that, says then, well, God will smite you, you whited wall. Remember that? And then the man says, would you talk to God's high priest that way? And Paul says, oh, I didn't know it was the high priest. And because the scripture says you'll not speak evil against the leader of your people, he couldn't see across the room as to who said that is the point. And in 2 Corinthians 12, it seems that this was his, quote, thorn in the flesh. And he had prayed to God three times, Lord, take this away from me. It's a hindrance to my ministry. If I didn't have this hindrance, I could do a lot better. And so, of course, the Lord answered him and said, no, uh, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. We need to remember that ourselves also. So, as we find, we're reminded of this, and I think that's probably why he says, you see what, how when I write and I sign my name, uh, I do it where I can see it. So, so what, would be, what would be your infirmity in your flesh? What would it be that you say to yourself, well, I can't really serve God very well because of fill in the blank? Because here's, here's my drawback. Here's my shortcoming. Uh, here's why I can't serve him very well. Is it your appearance? Is it something in the flesh that you have? Is it some ailment that you live with? Uh, what is it? You know, I think we've all got them. And we can all kind of reach back into our closet and say, well, you know, Lord, I'm like this. I can't, I can't do very well. It reminds me of a story of two great men, men of God that I have known in my life. One's named Ernest Pickering, and some of you uh, know that name, Ernest Pickering. A great author, he's with the Lord now, a preacher, a pastor, a theologian. And then another man, Eli Haru, who was one of my mentors in the faith, an instructor in Bible college and even my pastor for a while. And uh, these two great men were, were in a conference together, and uh, Dr. Pickering was losing his eyesight. He, he actually went blind before he died. And so Dr. Haru, who was a, good, a, friend, a good friend of mine, he was telling me this story one time. He said, I was sitting on the platform, and Dr. Pickering was here, and I was here, and he was getting ready to preach, and his eyesight was getting bad. And he said he leaned over to me and said, and said Eli, it was his first name, he said, it's gone. <laughs> he said, I said to him, what? He said, I can't see a thing. He's sitting on the platform ready to preach, and his eyesight's gone. And Dr. Haru said, he got right up, went to the pulpit, and preached his whole sermon without, <laughs> without a hitch in it uh, because that's what God led him to, and, and he had to live the, the rest of his short life that way. Well, if men can serve God, if Paul can do it, and men like that can do it, and how many other men 
uh, with ailments in the flesh have been able to do great things for God, surely we can do our part too. And you can too. You and I can too. So there's an infirmity here about Paul that I see I think is interesting. Secondly, I just want to mention his vocation. He says, what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. You know what Paul's vocation was? Not only preaching, but writing. Aren't you glad that Paul is writing Scripture? That, that word writing is the word graphe, grapho, the, the verb, which we get our word graph from, but to, to write is to make a graph. It's to, it's to design something with your, with your hand. It's a script. So we get our word Scripture from this very word that he uses here in writing. And I want to remind you of a few of these. Second Timothy, that two verses on the inspiration of Scripture. From a child, he says to Timothy, you have known the holy writings, the holy graph, the holy Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, knowing this first, no prophecy of the scripture, of the writing, is of any private interpretation. For this prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is, I'm writing what God is moving me to write. I'm writing scripture. You and I have never done that. I mean, we've written some things, but not quite like that. And yet, uh, he's doing it. Script, learning to write. I remember when our oldest daughter, Rebecca, went to first grade, and she came home after school one day and said, well, Dad, I'm done. I said, what do you mean you're done? She said, we learned Z today. <laughs> you know, we started with A, we learned Z, I've learned it all, I'm done. Well, we... We have to do that too. You know that I, I remember reading one time, I suppose this is right, that Socrates, as brilliant as he was, did not believe in writing. He didn't think you should ever write because you get lazy when something's written. You can put it down and come back to it later. He, he thought it should always be by memory. You should speak and you should hear by memory. That's what he th And I suppose that's right. That's why we don't have any writings from Socrates Everything we have from him, Plato wrote down for him because he believed in him. Well, I'm glad that God didn't listen to Socrates or, or anybody like that. God knew that we needed writing. We needed this thing we have in our hand right now, and he wrote it for us. He even called Jesus the Logos, the Word of God that gives us information. You know, I think there are different levels in our, in our life of dealing with things like this. And, and, of course, one is we learn to read and write, like Rebecca had to. You know, we learn the encyclopedia from A to Z. We go through the whole cycle. So somewhere back there in grade school, you learn to read and write, just how to make words and how to read words. And we all needed that. And then from then till you were done going to school, you did nothing but read. I mean, you, you had to read this book and read that and write this paper and write that. And everything we do as we learn, we had to read and write. But now, folks, you aren't done. 
Because no matter what our vocation is, no matter what we do in life, we have to work at it. We have to study for it. If you're a plumber, an electrician, or a carpenter, you have to learn how that's done. I can't believe what farmers have to know and go through and do in their bookkeeping and all the rest today compared to what they used to. We're, we're always studying. If you're a doctor or a lawyer, and I, I hope they do study, we all have to keep learning no matter what our vocation is. But you know why is the greatest reason? Because God left us his word. And there's no reason why we, as we get older, should not take those skills that are common to everyone and apply them to what God has said and read them. And so I, I think Paul's making that emphasis here. I'm writing to you. And he, says, he said that throughout this whole book. Now, a little personality here at the end, with my own hand, Paul signed this. Here's something interesting, and I'll, I'll remind you of it, that the writers in Scripture often were writing with a, a stenographer, a secretary. They called it an amanuensis. This was someone who was actually writing, and Paul was dictating. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I'm, you probably remember it. Here's an example in Romans at the end of that long letter, Romans 16, 22, Paul, who wrote the book of Romans? We say Paul wrote the book of Romans. But in verse 22, it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. <laughs> Who's Tertius? Some people have supposed it might be Silas, but if not, we really don't have any other information about the man. Somebody was writing down what Paul was dictating. Now, what does that do to your <laughs> view of inspiration? How God superintended all of this is amazing. Here's a greater example in the book of Jeremiah. You remember Jeremiah and a man named Baruch? Let me read two verses, verse 36 and 30, verse 32. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and there were many other words added to it. And then somebody asked Baruch, well, how did this come about? How did this book happen? And Baruch answers and says in verse 18, he proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. The book of Jeremiah. It's kind of amazing when you think about it that 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 kind of thing could happen. 1 Corinthians 16, 21. The salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. The salutation, he writes on it. He says that again two or three times in his book. Evidently, here's what happened. He would dictate it, someone would write it, and then he would sign it. He would sign it with these large letters. He would sign it with his John Hancock big enough for his poor eyes to see. And he's saying here uh, very plainly, uh, you see that I'm signing this with my own hand. Folks, every word, every jot and tittle, every letter and syllable in God's original writing is exactly what God wanted on that paper. 
Now, how he did it with different authors and different ways, some, some would actually write the whole thing, and many did it in the way that we're describing. Isn't it amazing that God still gave us his word uh, in the way that he did? Why did he do it like that? You remember 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, where Paul is warning the church. He says, don't be shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us. In other words, there were fakes out there. There were people writing scripture and, or writing books and pretending it to be scripture, and they'd put Paul's name on it or Peter's name or John's name on it. And no wonder Paul would say, here's my signature. I put my signature on this. This is from me. In 2 Thessalonians, uh, or excuse me, uh, Galatians 1.12 he goes on to say, I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, a little note here just to end. And, and folks, the reason I'm just kind of doing these details is it's in the Bible. <laughs> God leaves it here, and he leaves it here for us for a reason. The historicity of this book is amazing. Over 1,500 years from Moses uh, in 1400 B.C. all the way to John in 95 A.D., you have 66 books by 40-plus different authors over 1,500 years in two and, and part of a third languages over different countries of the world, and there are no discrepancies no contradictions, no plagiarism. Paul could even be the president of, of uh, Harvard if he wanted to, I guess. No mistakes in all of that. God oversaw that in a great way. So he did it for you and me that we could read it and understand it. But let's go on to the, second, the next verse, or verse 12 where I describe Judaizers in the church. Now, notice the difference between the second and the third point. Judaizers in the church means that there were people who professed faith in Jesus Christ, but were still intent on following the law and keeping the Mosaic law. And Paul has argued in this book, you don't need to, of course. But then in, in my third point is, but there are Jews who are not Christians, who are Judaizers, who are all over the country, and they're ready to persecute you if you don't do the right thing because you're a Jew by nature too. So first, he, I think, speaks of these Judaizers in the church, professing believers in the church. And we can learn a few things about them. Number one, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh. Notice my first word is, they're impressive people. They make a good show in the flesh. As a matter of fact, that expression, good showing, means is literally the word face. They want to put on a good face, and they do. You ever heard that expression? Uh, you know, uh, they, they are upfront with their feelings and their facial expressions and all the rest. They, they want to make a good show in the face. You know, some people who try to lead you astray seem to be the most polite and wonderful and friendly people you've ever met, right? That, that's part of what they do. We were studying in Matthew 23 
Wednesday night as we're going through the book of Matthew. And that's the chapter where Jesus really takes to task the, the Jews for their unbelief and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And so uh, here's a little bit of that. Matthew 23, 5 through 7 says, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries, what they attach to their hands and their forehead, broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the, blessed, the best uh, places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplace. And they love to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. These were the Jews. These were those Pharisees. And here you have some people even professing to be part of the church, and evidently sometimes they were among the believers. They had made some type of profession like this. But go back to chapter 2 in this book, and, and uh, notice verse 4. When we were there, we were talking about how Peter was up there in Antioch, and these Judaizers came from Jerusalem, from the church in Jerusalem. But in, in, chapter, in chapter 2, verse 3, he said, uh, or not, not uh, 3, verse, uh, verse 4, this occurred because false brethren, he calls them, he, he just puts the name on it, secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. You know, Judaism, Old Testament Judaism, was an impressive type of religion. The huge, big, beautiful temple, nothing more beautiful than what Solomon built when he made that temple. And even Herod's temple was, was beautiful. The city of Jerusalem was beautiful. They had priests and they had prophets, and they had kings who reigned, and they had, they, they had uh, feast days, and they had all of the things that went on in that beautiful place. And it was very impressive. And so even Jesus said in Matthew 23, they sit in Moses' seat. They represent Moses. And when they speak, boy, you listen. So here were these Judaizers kind of taking up that garb, so to speak, and speaking like that. But what's Christianity? simple gathering of simple people with a book in their hands. <laughs> what is that compared to the pomp and circumstance of Judaism and of the temple and these wonderful uh, people that you had in those days? And here are just plain pastors, plain people. There were the apostles, but they were plain fishermen and, and the rest too. And yet, here they were drawn away by these kinds of impressive people. I might ask you and me, what is it that we want out of our religion after all? Do we need somebody to impress us? Do we need somebody to wow us? Do we, do we need some, some fancy thing in front of us? Do, do we need some kind of show put on in front of us to make us good Christians? What is it we need? Who are you being led away with? Who, who's trying to impress you that you might follow them? We need to be very careful because here's Paul stressing the fact that you have true faith in Christ, you don't need those things, and you have what I've written to you. 
quite a lesson, really. Secondly, about these Judaizers, they were persuasive, though. So we read in verse 2, these try to compel you to be circumcised, compel you to do this. They constrain you to do this. That's why I went back to chapter 2, and in verse 3, I was thinking, there, uh, they were trying to compel, it says, was compelled to, to be circumcised. That's Titus. When he went with Paul down to Jerusalem, they said, you've got to do this, Titus. You've got to follow the law in this way. And Titus came away saying, no, I'm not going to. Well, praise the Lord for somebody like, for like, like Titus. And then uh, it's in verse uh, 14, where here is Peter uh, being pulled away by then, and Paul says to Peter, if you being a Jew live after the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? There was a lot of compelling and pressure and persuasion going on here. You know, the same thing has happened throughout church history. You know, what was in the old days circumcision became by some infant baptism. So what you do with a baby over here, you should do with a baby over here. And throughout the, the 2,000 years of church history, there are those who said you must baptize your infants. And if you don't, we'll persecute you. Do you know that a lot of our Baptist forefathers died of fire and being drowned in the river and all the rest simply because they said, I'm not going to have my child uh, baptized or christened, as, as they called it. Do you know how many people died and were persecuted, but the pressure was there to do it? A lot. And then the, the old Passover feast, some believe, became communion, the Lord's Supper, and the Roman church called it Mass, and they persecuted you if you didn't take that. I'll tell you a story. One of my favorite stories about that is in England with a man named John Rogers. And you have to go back to the 1500s where you know Henry VIII. You know that name anyway. He left the Catholic Church. And he was making, he was making England into a Protestant country after the Reformation type of thing. But he died and his daughter Mary Tudor, we call her Bloody Mary, came to the throne and she said, we're turning everything back to Catholicism. And everyone must take the mass, come and bow down before the host, they call it, or you will be killed. And she only had a short three-year reign and hundreds and hundreds of people were burned and killed in various ways for not bowing down to this pressure. Well, John Rogers was one of the men translating the scriptures from Greek into English. And, and his Bible, it was such a time of persecution that he called his Bible the Matthew's Bible. He used a pen name rather than his own name to, so that he, they wouldn't find him out till he got done with it. There's a place there called Smithfield. I've been there, and some of you have been there with me. In, in Smithfield was a place where they burned people who would not keep the mass. Mary had them burned there. And in a short about year and a half, over 300 people lost their life in the flames in Smithville. And I've stood on the marker where that had taken place. Well, John Rogers was the first 
John was the first one to die at Smithfield because they found out he was simply translating the scriptures and he would not take the mass. Someone described him as, he said, he broke the ice valiantly. <laughs> he did it first. And I think of stories like that and I think to myself, what does it take for me to compromise? What does it take for me to give in over here to somebody's persuasion, to give in over here to somebody else's, uh, you know, good works or whatever? Uh, here are people who, who wouldn't do it to the, with their very lives. So we need to understand that. Having faith and a good conscience, which some, having turned aside, have made shipwreck, Paul says, shipwreck in their Christian life. So these Judaizers, I say, were impressive. They were persuasive. But you know what? They were also fearful. And that's the interesting thing about verse 12 at the end, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Now, here were those who professed faith in Christ, and yet if they said, you don't have to keep the law, all you need is the cross of Christ, then they're going to be persecuted by, these, by their Jewish, you know, unbelieving Jewish uh, friends and brethren and the rest. And so they said, well, then we need to keep the law so that we don't get persecuted. They don't want to suffer for the cause of the, of the cross itself. And amazing when you think about it. So what, what was going on here? Paul is saying to them, if, if I believe in circumcision, believe that you should do it, why are they persecuting me? They're persecuting me because I'm saying you don't need to do that. I'm willing to suffer for the cause of the cross. You need to do that too. But here these Jews are saying, no, you better get circumcised or they're going to get you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to come after you. So you, you, better, you better do this. Look back at chapter 5 and verse 1. What does he mean by this? Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't give in to those things just to avoid the persecution that comes your way. So I ask you, as I ask myself, what keeps you from getting persecuted for your faith? Do you, is it a lifestyle that you, you live and you do it this way around friends and coworkers on the rest so that they won't make fun of you? So that they won't persecute you in some way, maybe not physically, but some other way? Are, are you, do you do a little wokeness and a little belief that, well, that's okay and this is okay so that you don't get any criticism about your faith? Maybe you need a little contemporary, uh, contemporariness in your, in your life and worship. Maybe it's social. Maybe it's political. I don't know what it might be, but what is it in your own life that you say, you know, I'm going to go along with it so that they don't make fun of me? I think that's a proper application to this because that's exactly what these people were saying to the other believers in the church. And Paul is saying in verse 14, by the way, when you skip down to it, God forbid. God forbid that I would glory in anything except in the cross. 
So Judaizers in the church. But one more thing we need to look at quickly, and that is, I think in verse 13, now he goes outside the church and refers to all of those Jews who are ready to persecute Christians at the drop of a hat because they can't stand that new faith. They are unbelievers. And notice how Paul begins, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Those who are circumcised, that's, a, that's the New Testament expression for Jewish people. And you know that I know that the Jewish people are special in God's eyes. God still has a covenant with them. But that doesn't mean they're saved. And most of them will die lost because all they're trying to do is keep the law. But notice, I pick up these three things in this verse. Number one, they're hypocritical about it. And Paul says up front, not even those who are circumcised keep the law themselves. And isn't that what Jesus was saying in Matthew 23? Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You don't keep the law yourself, but yet you, you tell everybody else they have to keep the law. But they didn't do it. Matter of fact, I counted back in Matthew 23, six times in, within 17 verses, he looks right at these Pharisees and says, you scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Jesus is pretty pointed about it. And Paul is, is being so here, too. They didn't even keep the law. We know that there were certain offerings that they would come to the temple that they're obligated to give, but they had secret code words like the word korban, which means gift. And if, you, he, if they said that secret code word, they could keep their offering and didn't have to give it. We, knew that, we know that there were certain oaths. We looked at that in Matthew 23, that uh, they could swear by the gold, but not by the temple, and therefore, they didn't have to keep their oath. And various different things like that that they did, including uh, immoral things and, and others. And Jesus knew that. Paul knows that. Paul grew up around all of that. And so he just says flatly, they're telling you that you have to do these things, and you know good and well they don't do them. They don't do the, these very things either. As a matter of fact, the whole nation of Israel failed to keep the law and that's why God has scattered them all throughout the world and will not deal with them until the latter days when he comes back to the earth nothing nothing worse than someone telling you what to do who's hypocritical about it himself or herself is there I mean we have that throughout governments we have that throughout businesses we have that throughout all kinds of of things in our society that that uh, we, we are told we have to do it, and they don't do it. And yet that's what, that's what Christians lived under uh, even in that day too. So they're hypocritical. And secondly, I say legalistic. Again, they desire to have you circumcised. You better do it. You know why we use the name Judaizers? It's a, an expression that means they tried to make Jews out of you Gentiles. You wouldn't have done this, except that they are pressuring you to do it, and they're telling you, you can't have eternal life unless you do. That was the big issue going on right now in Paul's life. We go back to Matthew, or, uh, Acts chapter 15, where these Judaizers came from the church at Jerusalem, where the apostles were, where James was the pastor. 
And they come up to Antioch and say, unless you keep the law, you can't be saved. I mean, that's a pretty heavy uh, indictment. And yet, they were doing it. And so, Paul, that's why in chapter 5, verse 1, I read a minute ago, no, stand fast in your liberty. You don't have to keep the Old Testament law. Now, folks, I, I think you understand as Christians that that doesn't mean ignore the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that it's not inspired. It doesn't mean that you can't learn every, every scripture is profitable for doctrine. Uh, it means that we know there are some things that were for that age and some things that are for this age. And we know that. But you can see what they're doing here. Now, the question is, are you hypocritical? Am I hypocritical? If we can say this about hypocritical leaders, what about ourselves? You know what? If we dig deep enough within our own heart and our own mind, we can find our own hypocrisies, can't we? We can find that uh, we're liable to this very thing, too. So we need to learn from God's word about this. Now, so legalism uh, is a terrible thing. Let me tell you this story real quick. I was out in Denver this uh, past fall with my son and, and uh, at his house, and, and he was, you know, he had had chemo, so he was uh, stretched out on the couch there, not very comfortable. The doorbell rang, and I went to the front door, and it was two Mormons at somebody else's house in a new neighborhood. And so, okay, uh, you know, I stepped out on the porch, and we began to talk. Well, I, I know enough, at least, about Mormonism that they believe that you can't get to heaven without good works. And the good works is joining the Mormon church and doing the Mormon stuff. And yet, they're just, because they didn't know who I was and, and all, I knew who they were. They're, they're talking to me as if they're some kind of evangelistic fundamentalist. Because they know if they can talk to you that way and pull you into their movement, then you find out what there is really going on. And so I kind of called them on it, and they said, oh, no, we believe what you believe. No, we don't believe all of that stuff. We don't believe what the prophets, our prophets have said, that is, the Mormon prophets. We don't, you know, and, and I'm saying to myself, you do too. As a matter of fact, I said to them, you do too. And there was, there was one guy, a young kid who was learning and an older man doing the talking, you know. I said, you're lying to me, and you know it, and he knows it. <laughs> you know? And, and I, afterwards, I got to tell you, I had to repent of my sins because I went back in. I said, Lord, I'm sorry. Here are two people lost and on their way to hell, and I get mad and tell them to leave. <laughs> get off the porch. Get off my son's porch. <laughs> liars. I think Paul, Paul kind of felt this same way. When he's, talking about, when he's talking about these kinds of people. And so uh, he says, uh, lastly, they boast in your flesh. They're prideful. They boast in your flesh. Uh, but these desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. You become their validation. You become their prize. If they can get you to follow them, they can go back and say, I got another one. I got somebody to follow. I said, they, they did what I told them to do. You, you remember, uh, let me read uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 12. You remember this verse? Paul said, we dare not make ourselves of the number 
or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. He even said in that same book, for we are not as many that corrupt the word of God. The word for corrupt is hawking the word of God. Did you ever go to the state fair and there's a guy over there that wants you to throw bottle, uh, balls at milk bottles, you know, and he's saying, hey, come over here, come over here. It's hawking something. That's exactly the word Paul used of these guys that do with their message. So he says, God forbid, and we're going to come back to that verse next time. But let me, let me tell you something, Christian believer, about validation. You, as a believer, don't need any validation for your life and your faith other than the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you that forgave you of your sins. That's the only validation you need. And that's why Paul will say, I will glory in nothing, in verse 14, except in the cross, in the blood of Jesus Christ. So by wrapping this up real quickly, three groups I've talked to you about, there are three spheres in your life you need to pay attention to. Number one is yourself. Make sure that you are doing the right thing. You're needy. You're growing. You have weaknesses and strengths. Proverbs says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You make sure your heart is right. Secondly, all the voices that you hear, and, and most of them within so-called Christianity, with Christendom as we call it. Some are good, some are poor, some are terrible. And yet, you can listen to anybody in the world by turning on your phone right now if you want to. Guard your eyes, guard your ears from what's out there. And then thirdly, there's the world. They're lost. They don't know Christ as Savior. Usually very negative toward belief. They're very needy, and they have eternal souls that are going to go somewhere and spend eternity somewhere. And we're there to try to help them. Be careful. Of some, Jude says, have compassion. It makes a difference. And he said, others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, even if you hate the garment spotted by the flesh. So, that's our, that's our commission. That's what we need to do. I think these last letter or, or words from Paul in this letter are valuable to us. We ought to be able to conclude our life with statements like this. All right, stand with me, if you will. Thank you for the time. And, and as uh, we read this, I hope that you could apply these things to your heart, too. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, how we thank you for what is written we thank you for men like Paul who were inspired and yet dedicated, godly, and fearless men. And we thank you, Father, for many that we have known in our lives who have been that same way. So, Father, you know our hearts. You know what's inside of each of us. Father, I pray that you would, that you would help us in this world in which we live to be your emissaries, your, your ambassadors, and evangelists in this world. Help us, Father, to keep straight. Help us to be able to discern. Help us, Father, to be non-hypocritical but genuine people. And help us, Father, to be able to give your word with power. So bless in this as we sing, as you speak to our hearts. May we yield to you in every way we need. We'll thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen. Our invitation is open as we sing, and even as the service is, is ended, uh, you respond in the way that God is leading you to respond. Gordon's going to come and lead us in a song.